morning, friends. They always go to sleep when you don't want them to, don't they? Not like children. <laughs> Hi, friends. In case we've not met, I'm Mike Croft. I'm one of the team of lay preachers here, bringing to you our 2024 summer series on thankfulness. And I want to thank God for this morning. I really don't need to say anything. If you've been paying attention to everything that has been said already. One of the great blessings of belonging to this church is you don't need a sermon in order to hear the gospel. Matt started out by talking about water. I spent some time in it this morning. It was lovely. But it didn't refresh me in the way that the living water of Jesus that Matt talked about would refresh that Samaritan woman. What a story. You can read it for yourself. And then we had that psalm read to us. Verse 3, you held back your fury, you kept back your blazing anger. This is the New Living Translation. Now restore us again, O God. Restore us again, O God of our salvation. Put aside your anger against us once more. We were reminded in that little passage of how God kept delivering the dopey Israelites. Not like us, we're not dopey, are we? Much. The Israelites had a Sabbath. They worked six days and rested on the seventh. And they made it a great rule that you shouldn't work on the Sabbath. That was a real poke in the eye to Babylonian religion. Babylonian religion said the seventh day was dreadful. It was a day of fear. It was superstitious, a bit like Friday the 13th. And so as a poke in the eye to that religion, God said, well, we'll have a rest on the seventh day. We'll make it holy. We'll make it a blessed day. We'll make it a special day. But the poor old Israelites, they just mucked that up too, didn't they? And that's what we've heard already. I don't know what else I can say, but since I worked on it, I'm going to say it. (laughs) And poor Mike's wondering when the script's going to start. Now, (laughs) last week, Matt showed us how vitally important it is to give thanks to God. And this morning, he exemplified that in giving thanks for all sorts of stuff. And much of that stuff I'm going to do with him, what I'm going to say. He said that in the Bible, thanking God occurred 161 times compared to two times to thanking a person. He encourages us to be more mindful of God in our lives so that we can be more expressive in giving thanks to him rather than to other folks. And it's to be in a ratio of 161 to 2. This week I've been asked to share my thoughts, on my reflections on Philippians 4, 4 to 7 and why thankfulness is an antidote to worry. I'll explain how our devotion and faith in God is expressed in our thanks by rejoicing in the Lord always. 
I was quite pleased to be invited to share with you my thoughts on this passage as it is a favourite one of ours, especially verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I'll say, rejoice. In the English Standard Version of the Bible, the words joy, rejoice or joyful, doing the stats again, appear a total of 430 times. Trump's thankfulness, doesn't it? And that compares to happy or happiness, which only occurs 10 times. Joy is lasting. It satisfies the heart in a unique and marvellous way. Joy is a characteristic of God's people, which is found in his presence. Trish and I were married 50 years ago in St Paul's Anglican Church, Oakley. That's the Reverend Lawrence Lovell handing us our marriage certificate in 1973. At the end of the service, we walked out of the church as people sang Philippians 4.4. It's a very simple chorus. Have a listen. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice, 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 and again I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. It's a catchy tune, isn't it? Hopefully that's a bit of an earworm and you find yourself humming it later on. This idea of rejoicing always may seem a bit trite, a bit too easy and simplistic, especially if life is difficult at the moment. It may seem a bit like the Bob Marley song, Don't Worry, Be Happy. Here's a little song I wrote you might want to sing it note for note, don't worry, be happy. Can you really not worry and be happy? I'm sorry if that's the earworm that you get, not the other one. Can I, by the power of my mind, stop worrying and make myself happy? In 1952, an American minister, Norman Vincent Peale, wrote this book, The Power of Positive Thinking, a practical guide to mastering the problems of everyday living. This popular self-help book claims to provide the techniques for an individual to take complete charge of their own life. Unfortunately, he misuses the Bible somewhat to do this. This idea that I can create my own happiness by being positive by thinking positive thoughts, by thinking happy thoughts, by not worrying, remains very influential today. Some Christians adopt this approach and encourage people to claim the life-affirming promises of God whilst ignoring the context and also the more difficult 
promises. Today we can see his influence in the wellness movement. The National Wellness Institute says that applying a wellness approach can be useful in nearly every human endeavour as a pathway to optimal living, enabling me to become my best self. Let's look at the eight dimensions of the model. Occupational. I can have personal satisfaction and enrichment derived from my work. Physical. I can be well as I recognise the need for physical activity, diet, sleep and nutrition. Intellectual. I can be well as I recognise my creative abilities and find ways to expand my knowledge and skills. Environmental. I can have good health by occupying pleasant, stimulating environments that support well-being. Like the Gaza Strip. I can cope effectively with life by creating satisfying relationships. I need to be satisfied with my current and future financial situations. Social. I can be well by developing a sense of connection and belonging and through a well-developed support system. And spiritual. I can be well by expanding my sense of purpose and my meaning in life. You can see that God has no place here at all. It's all about me and it's all up to me to create in myself my own well-being. I can even expand my <coughs> excuse me. I can even expand my sense of purpose and meaning in life. I'm the all-powerful author and creator of my wellness. I can make me my best self. In Philippians, Paul doesn't see things this way at all. Please have Philippians 4 open as I pray before we explore the scriptures. Dear loving and gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to consider your scriptures today, please open our hearts and minds to receive guidance and understanding from your Holy Spirit that we may apply your word to our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen. For your information, I'm going to refer to various Bible passages as we proceed, but I will not be reading them all. They'll be noted on the screen, so you can scribble them down and look them up later to check my reading. But first I want to repeat reading Philippians 4-7. to Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I'll say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, in prayer and by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Four fairly straightforward verses for us to think about here in the closing section of Paul's letter. Rejoice, be reasonable, don't be anxious, pray about everything. God will provide peace and protection. Did you notice that the source and reason for rejoicing is the Lord? That they are to be reasonable because the Lord is nearby. And anxiety about anything in life is dealt with by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving to God. For Paul, it follows then that God will provide his peace and his protection. For many of us, 
Life is messy and unsatisfying. It's very hard to see God, let alone be reasonable or rejoice at all. How can Paul say this? He must have been in a pretty good place back then in 62 AD, don't you think? Well, four years previously, in 58 AD, Paul had been seized in the temple at Jerusalem. Subsequently, he'd been shipped to Rome as a prisoner from where he wrote this letter. Paul's chained to a soldier in an apartment. He's not 100% sure what the outcome of his trial will be, but he's both optimistic and realistic about the possible outcome. His primary concern is that he honours Jesus. The apartment situation was better than a prison cell, but the Roman penal system required Paul to pay his own room and board. So that meant he was dependent on the care of his friends. And that's where the church at Philippi comes in. Philippi was an important city in Macedonia. Philippi, excuse me, it sat on a major east-west highway and it had special status. At the end of the Roman Civil War in 32 BC, Octavian defeated Anthony and Cleopatra to become the heir to Julius Caesar's throne. Bit of name dropping. He settled many veterans in Philippi and gave it the honour of being a Roman colony, granting it Ius Italicum, meaning it was like a little piece of Rome in Macedonia. Philippi was very proud of this status, which gave, many, gave Roman citizens favour over all the other residents in the city. All of this would have affected Paul's experience when he first visited the city about 50 AD and started the church there. This also very much influenced the social position of the church as well. Paul regularly travelled through Philippi on his journeys and developed a special relationship with the church there. This is evident in the warmth of the tone in this letter to the Philippians. So, in the year 62, under the anti-Christian reign of the Emperor Nero, the Philippians' beloved apostle and friend Paul sat in custody, dependent on the support of friends like them. So the church in Philippi took up an offering to send Paul a gift. In those days, the only way to send money to someone was to do it in person. So Epaphroditus, a man from the church, took the offering to Paul. On the way, Epaphroditus became so sick he almost died. When word of this got back to his church family in Philippi, they were very concerned. Once Epaphroditus had fully recovered, Paul sent him back to Philippi with this letter to thank them for the gift and to address a few issues facing the church. The church was dealing with opposition, which was causing some tension. The church was experiencing some mild disharmony and Paul took this opportunity to encourage unity through humility. Eodia and Syntyche needed to settle their disagreement. You've got to wonder how Paul can talk about being anxious and rejoicing. He's been a prisoner of Nero for four years. He depends on the goodwill of others for his daily needs. He's chained to a soldier all the time. 
He's to be judged at some point by Nero. So he is actually in a life or death situation. Hardly the circumstances to make you rejoice in the Lord. Yet he composes this warm letter to communicate both his thanks and his instructions in terms of participation in the gospel, encouraging the Philippians to make their life all about what is best for that gospel. There are three themes in this letter. Imitation of Jesus through humble service, the hope of the resurrection life, God's gift of peace in difficulty. Paul encourages the Philippians to live a gospel-centred life so that all their circumstances and relationships are viewed through the lens of what's best for the gospel. In chapter 2, he clarifies what the gospel is. We find this summary of the gospel in Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11. It's a creed-like hymn or poem. Here it is. Jesus was in the form of God, but he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus is equal to God. He is the co-creator and co-author of everything. It is by him and through him that we all live and move and have our being. But in spite of this, he didn't try to take charge. But Jesus made himself nothing taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Even though Jesus was God, he didn't cling to that. Instead, he took on the role of an obedient human. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Unlike Adam and all people since, Jesus didn't try to take charge. He instead took on the role of an obedient human servant to the extent of dying on a cross. But of course we know, rising on the third day, death could not hold him down because he's God. The resurrection is more than a return to this life. For Jesus, it's a return to life eternal. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. Because of his humble, obedient service, God raises Jesus to be exalted, Jesus to be honoured above all by God's declaration of him as Lord, Lord of all. Nothing is superior to him. So that, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's now the one who rules. He's in charge. He's Lord of all. Everyone is subject to him. He's the king. Every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Some will kneel and confess that Jesus is Lord out of joy and relief that we are with our Saviour and the troubles of this life are all over. Some will kneel and confess out of fear and dread. 
Fear because they have not accepted the rule of the King of the universe, King Jesus. And dread as they consider what fate awaits them. You'd be wise to join with the Philippians in the first group. With Jesus as your Lord, you will enjoy a whole new perspective on life. And what I'm going to say will make much more sense to you. I'll explain just how to do that. We need to acknowledge that we are not God, but that Jesus is. We need to say sorry because we don't live the way God wants us to. All of this is called being a sinner. We need to ask God to take full charge of our life. I'm going to say this prayer myself and you might like to quietly join me. Dear Lord Jesus, I've been living my life ignoring you and I know I'm a sinner. I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. Help me to turn from my sins. I ask you to come into my head, my heart and my life. I want to trust and follow you as my Lord and Saviour. Amen. If you just prayed that prayer for the first time today, you need to tell someone about it. Talk to one of the folks here or talk to the person that bought you. Share it. It's news worth sharing. It's a life-changing moment. What I'll say next will also be of assistance to you as you, try, as you learn to trust and follow Jesus. Paul has said a prayer like this and he's devoted to this Jesus. He has complete faith in God in spite of his circumstances to bring him to eternal life. In Philippians 3, 5 to 11, Paul outlines his significant Jewish qualifications. And then he dismisses them in verses 7 and 8 saying, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus my Lord. He wants us to know how much he values Jesus as he continues to encourage the Philippians in their daily struggles in this very Roman city. He wants them to be faithful servants of King Jesus. He wants them to be united in fellowship with him and to consider anything they gain is nothing in comparison to having Jesus as Lord. Paul's faith enables him to think like this because of his encounter with Jesus, because of his talks with the apostles and his thorough knowledge of the Old Testament. Look with me at Psalm 127. This psalm is also a favourite scripture of ours. These first two verses are especially encouraging. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labour in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stay, stays awake in vain. It is in vain you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Devotion to God is the cure for anxiety. It's vain to be so busy that God is ignored. Unless he's at the heart of my endeavours, 
they're in vain. Unless I've called upon him and trusted him to watch over me and mine, I'll be anxious, I'll be worried, I'll be unable to rejoice in the Lord. And in Jeremiah we read, and it's very interesting that Matt read this this morning too. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He's like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes. For its leaves remain green. It's not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The person who trusts in the Lord is like a tree planted by water. Trust in the Lord will keep the person alive. Trust will enable them to survive hard times. Trusting in the Lord is the cure for anxiety and worry. It's the means of becoming fruitful for the kingdom of God. Throughout the Old Testament we see whenever the children of Israel cease trusting in God, they get in a mess only to cry out to God to send them someone to deliver them. Paul was well aware of this. And he also knows what Jesus has said in the Sermon on the Mount, which you find in Matthew 5 and 6. This is a challenge to trust God as well as an antidote to anxiety. I just want to look at a few verses, verses 24 to 32, with some abbreviations. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lily of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Will he not much more clothe you? O oh, you of little faith! Therefore don't be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Jesus tells us we cannot serve two masters. We cannot serve God and money. He says, Don't be anxious about your life, because you are of more value to the Father than the birds of the air. He says, anxiety will not add anything to my life. Anxiety are the result of misplaced devotion, misplaced faith. If we're devoted to our job, our education, our appearance, our recreation or our family, at the expense of our devotion to God, we will naturally be anxious and unable to rejoice in the Lord. Jesus tells us to serve God first. To trust God because our Heavenly Father knows all of our needs. As he says in Matthew 6.33, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for today is its own trouble. To relieve the stresses of life, I need to first seek God's kingdom and his righteousness. This will relieve my anxiety. This will enable me to see life from his perspective and so be able to rejoice in the Lord. 
This might seem impractical to you. But earlier on in the chapter, Jesus has taught us exactly how to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. It is through prayer. Here's Jesus' antidote to anxiety. Here's the way I can rejoice in the Lord, Lord always. I need to pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we also have forgiven those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I can go into my own room and meet with my God and Father and dress him directly. I need to remind myself that it is his kingdom that's important and that my job is to work for him to help bring it about. I need to trust him for my material and spiritual well-being. And I must always acknowledge that I am a sinful, rebellious person who fails to live up to his perfect standards. I'm deeply in debt to Jesus for his death on the cross for me. As such, I'm no better than anyone else. Finally, I must ask God to help me cope with all of the temptations of this life. Using the Lord's Prayer as a model for his prayers, Paul gave Paul a rationale for rejoicing always. That's why he can say in Philippians 4 that the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The Lord's at hand. He's nearby, waiting for us to come to him. He's the father waiting for the prodigal to come to himself and return home. The Lord's the shepherd, searching for the lost sheep. He's the widow, searching for the lost coin. Will you come to your senses and come to God? There's no need to be anxious. There's no need to worry. Jesus is waiting for you. You can have faith in him as he is totally trustworthy. Friends, please, devote yourself to Jesus. Pray to God frequently. Use the Lord's Prayer as a model. Study the Bible's teaching. Fellowship with God's people. Then you will be thankful, which is an antidote to worry. And so we can say together, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I'll say, rejoice. Amen. Amen. Um, there is no question time today, but if you have questions, I'll be happy to answer them outside. But there is a time to reflect on what's been said. And if you've got an app or a pen, you can write down your questions and give them to me or ask me.
stand and sing together. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord.